So I want to ask you a question right at the outset, and that is, does Jesus really want to save everyone? Well, it's a good question. Who would Jesus save? waiting for my technical team coming behind me. That's not working. That's working. Here we go. So the question is, who would Jesus save? Well, we would probably agree Jesus would want to come and help a man like this. We'd possibly understand that Jesus would want to come and help a person like this. This has been my reality several times in my week. <laughs> I was going to say my life, but like it's every week. Praise God, Jesus comes to save me in the midst of my challenge. Some of you will relate to that. Hoping that Jesus finds you in the midst of your challenge. But I wonder sometimes if we have a prejudice or we have a prejudging around who Jesus would save. And we almost assume that Jesus doesn't need to save some people because they look pretty happy. Their life looks pretty comfortable. In fact, they might even be seated in this church or another church in our town. But the question is, who would Jesus save? Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. Jesus rocks up to this guy called Matthew. He's a tax collector and he's sitting in his booth Collecting tax. You know what that means? He's taking the cash off the people. Probably not the most popular guy in town. Jesus says, follow me and be my disciple. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. I mean, how do you get into that club? I don't, I don't know, but... They were obvious to the people. But when the Pharisees, the leaders of the church, saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? They quote in the Old Testament when they say that, apparently. When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. And he added, now learn the meaning of the scripture, for I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. So I'm kind of wondering, who would Jesus save? Who would Jesus save? And, and, and this is the title of my message. We're in a, we're in a series uh, that we've called, uh, He Is and I Am. He Is, I Am. And it's, it's based on this um, God saying, 
I am the great I am. And then us saying, well, because he is the great I am, we can be who we are. But in the context of the series and in the context of the opening passage, what I thought I would, I would do is I would give you this simple thought for today's message. He is always working, and I am his partner in this work. God is always at work. And so what I want to do today is I actually want to go back to the basics. I want to go back to Jesus 101. And I want to preach salvation. Because I really think it's important at this time of year that we understand the theology of salvation in order that we can participate in the message of salvation. Because the risk is we look around us and we prejudge. Or we have filters and we're not quite sure what the message of salvation is all about. And we're going to do some CrossFit today. We're going to jump around the scriptures. But this is our anchor. This is the verse for today. And there's lots of verses in the Bible that point to this. And we're going to look at them because we want to understand the Bible teaches us the truth. But this is in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. The letter to the church in Rome is a fantastic lesson on grace and salvation, starting at chapter 1. We find ourselves in chapter 8 and Paul's writing about the inclusion that God has for the people who are reading it and many others. This first version, I've got three versions here. This is from the ESV. It says, those whom he, God, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So I've been looking over this scripture, and one of the things that I like to do when I'm studying the text is I like to look at different versions, different translations of the Bible, and, and look at the overlaps and look at the differences. So we can have a look now at the Good News translation. It has a different phrase. It says, those who God set apart, he called. And those he called, he put right with himself, and he shared his glory with them. And we start to understand the phrases that are part of the message of salvation when we start to look at the different translations, because these translators, they're part of a committee, they get together and they, they wrestle over the, the original text, the meaning, the intention, the context, and things far too great for me to explain. And so we look at one more version. This is the New Living Translation, this is the one that I read. And it says this, having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. This is the key passage. And we're going to see that in this passage, it really, we find the message of salvation, Jesus 101. And in it, there are four key phrases that I want us to look at to understand in order that we would be able to participate in God's message of salvation. Because this is not a, a, a life that we're called to where we get to sit on the sidelines. Well, it certainly wasn't God's intention. So I've chosen the word set apart as the, or the phrase set apart as the first one. And we saw that in the Good News Translation. The second one is called. God has called people to himself. The third one is justified. That comes out of the ESV translation. And the last one is glorified, which is in most of them. 
want to look at those four, and I want to probably um, cause a bit of tension, I hope. It's always good to have tension, eh, out of the Scripture? As long as I'm not offending you, but if Jesus offends you, then that's good, right? Okay. Let's look at these four. Let's look at the first one, set apart. I want you to, if you're taking notes, then you're going to um, have lots to write down today. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Even before God made the world, he loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. This is God before the earth was even created, deciding you and me, or was it just you and me? Like small club, big club, small family, big family. I wonder what God was thinking. I wonder what he was thinking. Well, let's, let's have another look at another verse. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'm reading verses 13 and 14. As for us, Paul's writing this letter, so he's talking about him and his brothers. As for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters who are loved by the Lord. We are always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation. A salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. He called you to salvation when we told you the good news. Now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this theme that Paul's writing about that God, before the beginning of time, chose you. There's this idea that God's got a list. He made a list at the beginning of time. He said, yes, 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 yes. No, 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 no. Right. I've picked my family. God is setting us apart. Some translations say predestined. And I'm going to talk about that word in a minute. But, but I want to just come back to my, uh, my phrase I said before, where sometimes we, have, we prejudge or we have prejudice around those whom are on that list and those who are not. Because like those images showed, some families look happy, they look comfortable, they look like they've got it together, and so we bypass them when we think about salvation. I was thinking about this and, and I was thinking of what kind of example could I pick from the Bible? I came up with three, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to talk about Moses. Moses was, um, who was Moses? Moses was the leader who took the people from Egypt to the promised land almost. Well, they got there. So Moses leads the people out of Egypt. He has this burning bush experience. Do you remember that? Take off your shoes, Moses, before you're standing on holy ground before the Lord God himself. I'm calling you out to lead my people out of misery into the promises I gave them. And he does all these signs and wonders and miracles. He, he leads people through the Red Sea. You know the role of a leader is to take people places they don't think they want to go?
He gets to this place in Exodus 33. Well, he's not in a place, but we read it in Exodus 33, where he, he's before God. And he says, God, if you're not going with us, I don't want to go. Show me your glory. And he has this amazing encounter with God. Later on, when we read about Moses, we understand that Moses conversed with God as a man would speak to another man face to face. That's what it says in the Bible. Real special kind of connection with God. Many other great things, including the, the blueprints for the tabernacle, which later uh, became you know, the, the, the framework that they designed the temple around, representing their courts of heaven. Real special, dude. But what happened in Exodus 2, before all of that? Moses thinks he's going to help some guys, and he tries to break up a fight. And what happens? Kills a dude. And he gets marked as a murderer. Next time he comes out and he tries to help again, they go, what are you going to do? Kill me as well? She's got this reputation. You could, you could prejudge Moses and you could say, well, you've got a bad life. You've got a record. You've got a sin in your past that's not forgivable. You can't be used by God. You can prejudge people in that space. And yet God went on to do great things with Moses. Why am I saying that? God is the one who chooses men and women to walk with him. God is the one who set us apart. It says in Deuteronomy, Moses wrote these words, for you are the people that I set apart from all others. This, this bringing to himself God does with those that follow him. First Peter and in the Peter's first letter, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, we know it, wow, you're a chosen race. You're a special possession of God. You're a royal priesthood. This idea that God has taken us for himself, and he knew that we would before the beginning of time. And I'm wrestling with this, and I've got this idea that one of the translations, one of the English words for the thought is that we are predestined. And many people say in that context, they go, well, God already knew and it's already decided who would be in and who would be out. So why would we bother participating? Because how am I going to change God? And as I studied this in my theology textbooks, I came to this realization. God knows all things, but does not control all things. Let me explain it this way. Foreknowledge of something does not interfere with free will. I'll give you an example. For those of you that are parents, or um, you'll probably relate to this. If I was a parent of, uh, say, 10, 12 year old children, and I put a chocolate on the coffee table in front of them, and I sat back and watched, do you think I've got a good idea what's going to happen? What's going to happen? They're going to fight who's going to get it, and the strongest one will win. Not necessarily true. The quickest one will get the chocolate. Now, I knew that was going to happen, but did I make it happen? I did not. For knowledge does not interfere with free will. God is outside time, and he knows who's going to accept his invitation. But it doesn't mean to say he controls who does and who doesn't. So we can't prejudge situations thinking, well, God's already decided that. 
God knows in advance, but he chooses to submit himself to free will. But the reason he does that is because we've all got an invitation to be part of the story. Every single one of us must understand that we have this invitation. So how do we know who? Well, let's, let's have a look. First Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. Oh, let's read verse 3 and 4. This is all good news, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. God wants who? Everyone. He wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. Second Peter 3 verse 9. I told you we're doing CrossFit. Second Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise as some of you think. No, He's being patient for your sake. He wants, He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So what's my point in showing you this when we come back to Romans chapter 8? Those who God predestined, those who God set apart. My proposition to you is everyone. Everyone is on God's list. He wants everyone to be saved. There's a key, key thing here. Like if you look out into Tiamudu, you go into Waipa, and you look across there, you, you don't get to choose who's on God's list. Because everyone is. We've got to participate in that. There's a role for us to play. Let me, let me explain it by going to this next one. Called. For those that he set apart, he called. The easiest way to explain this by reading the, the, from the books I've read is just to think there's two sides to it. Invited and an accepted invitation. So God has given an invitation to all people. He desires that none would perish, but that everyone would come to a place of repentance before him. He desires that everyone would respond to that. The invitation is to all, but he knows not all will say yes. There are two sides to this being called. Romans chapter 2, verse 13. Do you mind reading the Bible? Is it okay if we read the Bible? For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right in His sight. So we can hear an invitation, but we can choose to reject it. So what I'm saying is, the tension in this is that everybody, God wants everybody to be saved, but we don't get to control who's on the list. They get to choose if they respond. So an invitation must be accepted. You see, God didn't put a chocolate bar on the table. God put a crown of glory on the, on the table. And he said, oh, I want every one of you to wear it. Oh, my children that are created in my image, every single human being. Oh, I desire that they would wear the crown of glory that I prepared for them. Everyone. And yet some disregard it. Some choose to reject it. And some don't even know it's there yet. And this is where the free will and the participation comes in. Because there's a key point going on here, and that is that people have to have faith in Jesus, but they have to know about Jesus to have faith in Jesus. We'll get to that in a second. 
Let's finish the theology lesson. The, sec- the third word, so we had set apart, we had called, and now we have justified. This is a, a sort of an old-fashioned word um, that is used in theology. And essentially, it means that God transfers the, he transfers the righteousness of Jesus to you. Um, I think it's the, the author of The Passion says it this way. He called us to himself and transferred his perfect righteousness to everyone he called. He transferred. Like, you can't earn your way into heaven. You can't be good enough to be like Jesus in your own strength. But God knows that, and he says, if you just say you've got faith in Jesus, then I'll transfer the righteousness of Jesus to you. And when God looks at you, he literally sees perfect Jesus. That's how this grace works. That's how the Bible explains the grace and the love of God in the way that it's given to us as a free gift when we say yes. We've all got the invitation. For those that accept it, they get to receive this righteousness not by their effort, but by his grace. Perfect verse for this is Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you've done. None of us get to boast about this. None of us get to boast. So God's grace is what makes us accepted by God because he does all the hard work. Now you transfer that from your life and think about everyone that's not yet currently walking in a relationship with Jesus. How hard is it for them to be saved? Well, not at all, because God does all the hard work. Okay, one more word. We did set apart, we did called, we did justified, and finally, the verse says we are glorified. This is really hard to wrap our heads around, but we, we've got to learn to live like we are one with Jesus. The scripture I read earlier from, it was also from Ephesians 2. It says, God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. Jesus said, I'm giving you my authority. Walk in it. And that was where that word came from before. We're not just treasured by God. We're trusted by God with all of the authority to have dominion over creation. That's, that's like massive. We puddle around like we're still on our L plates, and God says, oh, I've given you the power, the same cry, power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. Glorified. As Jesus is, so are we. When he looks at us, he sees the sacrifice of Jesus, he sees the purity of Jesus, and he sees the glory of Jesus in you. And he would see it in anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, any person. So the message of salvation, those four words that I used before, we're set apart, we're called, we're justified, and we're glorified. We did a, a, a conclusion to our night school this past week. We had a beautiful meal set up, celebrating the feast as, as we read about in the parable. And I can't help but reflect on that story of the prodigal father in a, in, in a brilliant picture of salvation in these four words. Because it says in Luke chapter 15, you can read the story for yourself. Many of you will know it well. But it says, while the son was a long way off, 
The father saw him. What does it say to us? The father's waiting. He's waiting for sons and daughters to come home. He's waiting for those whom he has called, predestined, set apart to accept his invitation. It's a beautiful picture of a loving father who runs towards the son and kisses him on the neck, embracing him despite the dirt, despite the shame, despite the loss. He gets into the dirt and loves him. The, the called uh, part means, you know, we've got an invitation that must be accepted. You'll read in that story that at some point the son had to come to his senses. He had to say to himself, what I'm doing isn't working. Back in my father's house, even the servants live better than I do. And every single person that is not yet walking with Jesus, the Holy Spirit is stirring them, showing them things. He's always at work around people to show them an invitation to receive his love. He's hoping that they receive it. And we see this as the son comes back to the father. When it comes to being justified, the best picture is Luke 15, when the father throws his robe around the dirty son. Bring the finest robe, he says. Well, whose was that? It was his. Cover his shame, cover his filth, cover his stench with my robe because I want people to see its beauty instead of his dirt. That's what being justified means. God covers your filth, he covers your shame, he covers all of the past and all of the mistakes and all of the disappointments, he covers them with himself. What a beautiful picture of how God clothes us in righteousness. And finally, glorified. We see the Father also say, bring sandals for his feet. Bring a ring for his finger. Kill the fatted calf, for we're going to celebrate. We're having a feast. This is a beautiful picture of the authority God gives us, the identity God gives us, and the celebration God has in our midst when we're part of his family. That's what it means to be glorified. Being glorified isn't just reserved for when you get to heaven. You can live in the glory of God today, and that's what he wants for you. Glorified, accepted by God because of Jesus, elevated to a position as a son or daughter, and living in that place where we're his representatives, we're trusted by him to steward his resources and to extend his kingdom into our realm. That's the dominion mandate. So this is the picture of salvation. You've got to wonder, why am I preaching salvation to a church that's probably heard it before and has probably already said yes to Jesus. I'm setting you up for something. I want you to see the power in the text. Romans chapter 8 verse 30 to me says God chooses everyone. God chooses everyone. So, so the power in that is that everyone in our town is chosen. Everyone in your family, chosen. Everyone in Waipa region, chosen. Everyone created in the image of God is set apart by God. He desires that none would perish. There's real power in that, if we would rest in that. If someone would come to mind, in your mind. 
Here's the invitation in the text. I want to go back to one of the verses I read earlier because when I reviewed this the other day, it said quite a lot to me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want you to look at verse 14. 2 Thessalonians verse 14. He called you to salvation when we told you the good news. He called you to salvation when we told you the good news. There was no lightning bolts, no angel turning up. He calls people to salvation when we tell them the good news. There's an invitation for us there. God wants us to participate in the story of salvation of other people. And it's not as hard as you think. But let's understand the tension in this. Again, um, well-known verse, but go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 and verse 14. Again, I said Romans is a brilliant letter on the grace and salvation of God. How, it says, so Romans 10, 14, how can they call on Jesus to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? There's the tension. God wants everyone to be saved. He's made it possible through the message of the good news. But they ain't going to hear it unless we tell them. So I believe God chooses that everyone would be received by him. But I'm suggesting to you that perhaps our prejudice or our judgment means we decide who gets to hear the good news and who doesn't. Or how they get to hear it. Or if they get to hear it. And I'm challenged by this. And I want to put this now in context for our church. Because we've got a whole lot of happy stuff going on right now. And we should be really proud of ourselves. I brainstormed just four things. I apologize if I forgot something. But we've got the Christmas hampers going on. You know, I'm so proud when people in our community come up to me and say, I love watching what you guys do in our town. You are the church that is known for getting out and doing stuff. And you should be proud of that. Not in a prideful sense that you would fall over, but in a well done, good and faithful servant sense. We've got the Christmas hampers. We're going to give away 200 hampers to families in need referred to us by government agencies. We're not choosing them. Oh, some of the churches will nominate, but largely needy families will get hampers of food, gifts, and goodies. We've got the Trio Amudu coming up. As we said, over 1,000 people will come through these doors over four days into our building. Operation Fix-A-Car is something that we do. Um, it really only hits one family, but the buzz goes wider. Where fam- families can be nominated, only one family is selected, but their car gets completely fixed as best as possible. And last year, we were there watching the, um, the lady pick up her um, people mover thing that got fixed, and it was full of gifts. Not just getting fixed car, but someone filled her car with gifts. I was blown away. It's amazing. And then we have the, the angel gifts 
that are prepared, or the angel tree, whatever that thing's called. And there might be other things. But, but you've got to understand that I'm pretty happy about this, and then I'm not. And I'll explain why. I, I call this community goodwill. There's lots of goodwill happening in the community. Lots of goodwill. And, and I also love the fact that you all jump in and get part involved. You know, like one night I was out doing the hamper collection. There was, um, I think I said to you, there was 25 people wandering around streets with uh, ringing a bell and wearing funny hats and receiving food donations. And they're having a good time doing it. I love that. I love that. But like I said to you, there's a problem with this picture. And the problem with the picture is that there's a big gap between what we're doing and our Christmas celebration. This year, uh, we're preparing ourselves for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day celebration. Identical, identical event. We're just giving two options for people to choose from. Because some travel at the morning of Christmas and can't join us. Uh, some have other situations. So we're just saying, look, we're going to do it twice. We're going to put it on. And we're going to call it the journey to hope. And we're going to declare that Jesus is the hope of the world. But my frustration and my challenge at the moment is this big black gap between what we're doing and the message of Jesus. Because as a church, we're called to do local missions. We believe in local missions. We invest in local missions. But when local missions is separated, or, or actually here's the judgment that I'm making, for it to be called local missions, it's got to point to Jesus. If it doesn't point to Jesus, it's not missional. But I don't want to stop doing all the good stuff we do. So what I'm going to propose to you is we just do a slight shift. Would it be okay if, we do, if, we just, if I make a proposal to you and we do just a slight shift we might be able to fix the problem on the board. The gap needs to be closed. You want to see what the shift is? Interested? Some of you are. You're part of this. What if we just move that up here? And we make the goodwill things we do a part of our mission, intentionally trying to bring people to Christmas where they will hear the message of Jesus. What if we set it up so that you, when you're doing goodwill with people, you also invite them to Christmas? Because we're not, we're not able to preach the message of Jesus when we give out the hampers. And the reason for that is we've made a commitment, we're working with government agencies, police, and others, and, and it's not our gig. We're serving it, but we don't have the right to superimpose ourselves on that out of respect. But I'm like, flip, like, we've got an opportunity there. How do we respectfully take care of that? So what if what we did became missional that pointed to Christmas Day or Christmas Eve and that we knew that those whom God calls and accept his call, they get to hear the message. So what I'm going to propose is we invite people to Christmas. I'm proposing that the answer to the salvation message invitation 
is that we all invite people to Christmas. And I propose to you that if we can invite them in here, then at least they get the opportunity to hear about Jesus. And our job is not to convert them. Our job is to share the good news. God already knows who's going to say yes and who's going to say no. But that doesn't give us the right not to share the message. So what we're going to do as a team, we're going to try and make it as easy as we can for you. We're putting together a whole lot of our media. We're going to print invitation cards that you can give to someone. We're going to do some advertising. But do you know what? I feel like God really stirring us in this and challenging us that there's way more power in a personal invitation than there is in an advert. Because putting an ad in the paper is not expensive. But how much more value is it in you knocking on your neighbor's door and saying to them, hi, just a little thing before um, I disappear, I would like to personally invite you to join us for Christmas. Did I just hear a pin drop? going to try and make it as easy as we can. We're going to point to social media. So for those of you that like to do it a little more subtly, there's going to be some videos or some, some social media posts that you can share or send as a message to your friends. We're going to make sure that the greeting teams are going to be smiley and happy and very welcoming when people come here. We're going to make sure the kids are involved. We're going to make sure that there's fun and music and carols. We're going to make sure the message of Jesus gets preached on Christmas. But if they ain't here, they ain't going to hear it. So here's, here's the rub. This is what it looks like. If I can get the host team to hand out the gift cards. What, what I want you to see is there are three parts to this that we all get to participate in. The first one is I think it would be a good idea to ask God who he would like us to center our attention on. I mean, the thing is, God already knows he's going to say yes or no, so why don't you just ask him who he wants you to invite? And he, that's not a guarantee they're going to say yes, but it's a guarantee you're led by God. Because obedience is better than sacrifice. So the idea is we ask God who he's calling and who we should partner with, and then we pray for that person or that family. Because prayer changes things. And then what we do is we actually invite them. And we're going to give you the tools to do that. So the first thing is we ask the Father who he's calling. The second thing is we pray for them. And the third thing is you use some of the tools that we give you or your own bravado and you invite them to Christmas. And, and look, I had someone say, oh, but I'm not going to be here this year. I'm overseas. Well, you can still invite someone. Hey, I'm not going to be there this year because I'm on holiday, but I'd really like to invite you to join my family for Christmas. They're not weird. They're lots of fun. And you'll really enjoy it. Some of them are weird. Just don't sit with the weird ones. So, so today, we're only going to do the first two because we haven't made the cards yet and we're really preparing this. And... Um, Grace, can I get you to um, bring the tree forward? I want to introduce you to the Christmas tree of hope. This is the Christmas tree of hope, and the cards you've got are for writing names on. And there's some string that we can, if they're not already on the string, then we, oh, they are? Oh, team are awesome. So we're going to pass out some pens, 
We're going to pray. And we're going to ask God to lead us in who we might believe in faith would come to Christmas with us. And then we're going to write that name on that card. And if you're worried about it, you can put their initials or you can use code. But by faith, we're going to take a stand and we're going to hang their name on that tree. And during the week, we're going to be praying for the names on the tree. We're not going to go through the cards and make a list. We're not collect, building a database or anything silly like that. Why am I getting to write the name down? Accountability, faith, obedience, participation. Because I am not inviting all these people to church. You are. I'm going to do my own cards. I'm going to be praying for faith and courage to go and do the invite thing. And I'm going to put those names up there as a sign of my commitment to the participation God's calling us all to. So let me pray. And then you can have some quiet time while the music's on. And you can think about who God would show you. And don't, don't prejudge. Don't write them off or assess them in your mind. Write them down in faith and see what happens. So mighty God, I thank you for this message this morning that shows us that your salvation is something that you invite us to participate in. God, I thank you that the message of Jesus Christ is the hope of all mankind. And Lord, I ask now that you'd lead us as a church, that you'd invite us to participate in what you're doing in Taumudu, and that you would reveal to us the names of people, that you would like to see on this tree of hope. And God, would you remind us to pray for the names, pray for the invitation. We say, Holy Spirit, we trust you in preparing the hearts and minds of people to come and join us for Christmas as we celebrate Jesus and the journey to hope that we're all on. So Lord, I bless the church. I bless them in the love of God the Father. I bless them with the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. And Lord, I bless them with the ever-dwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that guides them, strengthens them, and leads them. I bless them, Lord. Amen.